<laughs> Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and I have a very special guest today with me. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Michael Kiggins. Hello, Michael. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining. <laughs> long time listener, long time commenter, and now celebrated author for And the Train Kept Moving out already, right? It's out yes. as of September 1st, I believe. Correct. From Running Wild Press. Um, I want to talk to you about this book because it was deeply amazing and deeply upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess the place to start is uh, you should probably tell people what this book is about because that's a good place to get us going, I think. It's set in Memphis in 2003 um, and it opens on December 27th. It's uh, like 2.33 in the morning and the narrator protagonist Brian Meigs has committed an awful crime. He's murdered a man who date raped him and he is he is uh, in a severe moment of crisis and he is going to this place that as you'll find out in the novel has been both a refuge where he's retreated in the past and also a place of just embarrassment and and shame. And it's uh, the midway stanchion of the Memphis, Arkansas bridge, which locals call the old bridge. Um, and he is honestly, he's considering suicide. So he, the story then branches out from that. He, you see what you basically, you see what leads up to this moment and it all starts because he is this severely uh, he this severely dysfunctional person. Um, he's twenty six, and I know a lot of us are much older than that. And but he feels like his life is basically over. Uh, he doesn't really say that, but I feel I feel like you get that. And he's he has really bad OCD, like germ related, and a severe drinking problem, but he takes a chance when this hot guy flirts with him and they go out on a date and he gets drugged and wakes up to the aftermath. So the novel that, so the novel that follows is basically him trying to work up the courage to confront, to track down and confront that guy. Um, and along the way, like he gets sidetracked by, possible new relationships. Uh, but the whole time, he's just sort of haunted by the ghost of his childhood trauma and his adult trauma. And it all sort of leads to this final confrontation that takes place hours earlier than the prologue opens. Hmm. Um, so the, the publisher is describing it as a sort of a transgressive literary thriller, like the crimes happened, you know, who's done it. Right. Yeah. yeah and, it gave me a lot of that kind of like, um, it had kind of noirish energy to me. It kind of had like a, like a, the old, like it has a jaundiced energy. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like it's quite a feat because I spent most of this book unsure where my allegiances were supposed <laughs> to be. I felt I felt very dirty the whole time. Like 
it, it is a study in like the aesthetics of like dirtiness and like even the way that cleaning can be its own uncomfortable and unpleasant <laughs> affair. Um, where did this? Wow. Where did this come? From? Like you've written a lot of um, short fiction. This is your debut. Um, had this been percolating for a while? Like where where did the seeds of this come from for you? So the earliest version of this novel, and I, I'm about to explain this, but I, I always remember this awful tweet I saw where some, some writer said that if an author tells you it took them decades to write the, their novel, just know it's going to be awful. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, it literally took decades. Uh, yeah, this started out as in manuscript real, form. Like, did in it manuscript form? Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, like the first self-contained excerpt that was published from this was in 2001 on Blythe House Quarterly, and uh, you know, like I had, I had a manuscript that I was writing, like uh, in between um, undergrad and when I finally decided to go after my MFA. And it was nakedly uh, autobiographical. There was even a character that that is in the the final draft named Stefano, who was back then just really a author insert. Uh-huh. And it was a uh, it was really just a kind of a cliche gay coming of age story. Like he was infatuated with, but he thought he was in love with this this guy who had given him nothing but red flags who lived in little rock and if you read the novel like you'll see that that's Benji. but the whole thing started because i was dating a guy from little rock mm-hmm. um and uh we had you know i had left him and his best friend at uh the big club because it was late and he had shown up late and i was kind of pissed and he said, oh, okay, we're going home real soon. I'm like, okay, fine. I go home. I go to go to sleep. Early, early in the morning, I get a call, and he's at a gas station payphone just sobbing. And that, I turned that into, like, a scene, and that scene became the story of Stefano and Benji, and then, and then I get into the, my MFA program. And I raced through it in two years. Randall Keenan was my thesis chair. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, died not all that long ago, but he was a uh, you know just a brilliant writer, and he helped me sort of shape it. But back then, Brian was a totally secondary character, and left left Memphis, moved to Nashville. Uh, relationship fell apart because because I was an idiot. And it went into the trunk. I get hired full time to teach. Um, I get busy with that. A couple of years later, I'm like, I don't have enough student debt, so let me go to <laughs> let me go to a second grad school, a private one for you know theology. Oh wow, yes, yeah, such a lucrative. Well, I guess in the states, it kind of is a lucrative field. <laughs> well, I never wanted to be a pastor or anything like that. I just but the I jackets wanted... alone, such shiny sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like it was in and out of the trunk for years. And, and finally, you know, the pandemic hits and I'm like, okay, I'll take another crack at it. And like, I had rewritten it 
by that point, three or four times, like different points of view. But finally, I'd locked in that this story was really Brian's. And when I started focusing on his mental illness and addiction and just his ability to deceive himself, I realized, you know, like that was the better story. Like we don't, I'm sure some readers need like those gay coming of age stories, um, especially in YA. And that's awesome. But like, you know, I was in my forties. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't want that. And no, not throwing any shade at anybody else, but I thought it might be more interesting to explore a sympathetic character that you also, you mentioned like, not sure where your allegiances lie, but I wanted to write a, a character that was gay and problematic as fuck. Mm. And I think I did that. Yeah. it. I mean, you certainly did. <laughs> There's a, I, I couldn't, I was amazed while I was reading this about the way it was straddling. And I don't want to give away too much because uh, that is a risk. But um, as you say, like you, you tell us how it's going to end very early, like from the beginning. So yeah. like who done it is not the question. What is done is not the question either. Uh, and yet what keeps being problematized to use your word is like, I you increasingly are unsure how much your eye is being confused with or merged with or meant to see past the thoughts of the protagonist. Um, Not just in like, in a kind of like what actually happened kind of way, but also in like um, very obviously in like, in the way that his mental illness affects Um, his ideas about cleanliness um, where it's like that at least you have some sense of like okay well this I understand this is not meant to be normal behavior but then the way that that then accelerates uh, and sort of um, explodes uh, when questions of HIV arise and like this intense seraphobia begins to cloud the protagonist's mind and like this kind of this way that it was interesting to me, especially the way that that was hard to um, square the circle of the fact that this is also in some ways a period piece, right? And it's interesting to hear yes. it's been in development for 20 years because it wasn't then a period piece when it began. <laughs> and yet and yet, it's recovering this 2003, um, what many people tend to think of as the aftermath of the AIDS crisis. But of course, for those of us who live through it like seraphobia was still something we very much lived with and like yeah. the narrator's um inflammatory positions were not that outre um i know there's a lot of <laughs> questions <laughs> tangled in there but like one of them would be about the periodization and another would be about this kind of focalization with the narrator got you um so like my editor cody cisco um who was wonderful and uh Honestly, the novel that's out wouldn't be possible without him. He called it almost historical fiction. And I kind of like, <laughs> kind of did that. Like, you know, uh, but it is. Uh, 2003 is not that long ago, but honestly, 2003, it was maybe seven years after the highly act- active antiretroviral, antiretroviral treatment came out, Heart, that produced the Lazarus effect. 
Um, it was uh, the, some years before smartphones became ubiquitous, um, nine years before PrEP was FDA approved, 12 years before uh, we queers could get married in the United States. And, you know, there were websites like Adam for Adam and gay.com and a couple others I'm just forgetting right now, but there wasn't Grinder and, and Scruff and all the other little things. Mm -hmm. So like the periodization, I, I could have updated this, but I think it would, it wouldn't have worked because uh, today, like, you know, you can get on prep and right. You know, that doesn't protect you from everything, but it protects you from HIV. And, you you know, like if somebody who is positive is undetectable, they're untransmittable. And like these just weren't things that like when I in 2003, I was 28. Um, and yeah, it was just back then people were using and I know some people still are using adjectives like clean and dirty and right yeah so it to me it made sense for this character who is so obsessed with cleanliness while he throws himself literally into the dirtiest situations or the riskiest situations let me put it that way um to just be confounded by uh, the messaging <clears throat> So when it comes to the focalization, um, was it hard to inhabit this this narrator for as oh long as you did? Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> like so, like they bought it in twenty, like May 21, 2021, and I had to turn in the final draft. Uh, I got an extension, but I turned it in to them like mid March twenty twenty two. And honestly, I'm surprised that they got it out so quick. Uh, mm -hmm. It's kind of fast. Um, but uh, during that time, when they bought it, it was like 54,000 words. It was slim. And they're like, okay, this is great. You'll work with Cody. Maybe give us five to 10,000 more. I'm like, I can do that. Easy. Uh -huh. <laughs> I wound up giving them like, uh, a copy i'm sorry a manuscript that was almost ninety four thousand words long oh really it, it kept yeah, growing or, on you yeah because there was always this gap between part one and part two uh which was months long so you kind of leave brian at the end of the part where like this event happens and like he maybe can almost get what he wants but he doesn't um, and I won't say anything more, but it jumps from that to, you know, December or jumped from that to, to December. And I was like, when I got the reverse, the, rev the reverse outline, it was just start clear that there was a whole bunch of story there. And that's where I really sort of dug in and developed certain relationships Brian would have had during those months. Um, and the depths to which he would sink, that would help to justify where he goes by the end. Because I worried without that, it wouldn't seem realistic. Um, 
it, it wouldn't seem justifiable that he would do what he did or do what he does without this sort of series of hopeful developments and disappointments. Mm -hmm. um, but speaking about Brian himself, when I, when I submitted the final manuscript, I just felt emotionally hungover. Um, right. I, I, <laughs> he's, he's a sympathetic character, uh, but he's toxic as fuck. Um, the first review of this came out in a local sort of middle Tennessee literary organization named chapter 16. And the reviewer said something near the end that, uh, Brian is a character that you're going to empathize with and root for even while you want to grab his shoulders and shake him until he wakes up. Um, Absolutely. That was my experience <laughs> with this character. <laughs> uh, but I think that's what made him so com interesting and compelling is like, and conversely, you've sort of peopled his universe with these people who we are seeing through his perspective. Um, and yet we know they have more of a grasp on how increasingly lost he is becoming than he seems to, I think. That like yeah. there is those characters have an awareness. It's it's fascinating to read because I do think those characters have an awareness that of him that I think kind of exceeds his own at various moments in the text. I mean, and that's, I mean, why else use a first person narrator unless you're going to have somebody who is so certain of themselves, but yet you get to see, you know, exactly how other people see them, that they're mm -hmm. missing. And, you know, like this, the story of Brian, like, so many things could have gone differently if he had just, you know, not sort of internalized everything. Mm -hmm. And I, as exhausting as it was to write him, and I just want to clarify that I don't think it's exhausting to read. Um, I think it, you know, it's, again, he's a, He's a very conflicted character, but like if he had just reached out, you know, then there would have been no novel, but right. I, yeah, I just, um, I really, he was a very generative character, like, but I'm done with him. <laughs> <laughs> Did you worry about the opposite? Did you worry about the theoretical reader who kind of over identifies with him and does not find as much into critique and and who by the end is maybe on his team more than more than perhaps you were i don't know no uh that's that's funny like i'm kind of a i'm not kind of i am a pantser like i rarely outline uh-huh but by the time i had you know this all sort of like solidified to me it was kind of clear, like, this is a, this is a, a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. um, like, you want to identify with him, you want to root with him, root for him. But over the course of the novel, you're seeing, hopefully, what he's not, 
And I was hoping that would just accumulate. Um, so like one of my, one of the people that blurbed it or, and the reviewer were just like, and as you said, how you put it, conflicting allegiances, like I was aiming for that. And I can't really see anybody identifying with him, but it's 2023. <laughs> so I'm sure somebody will. I mean, people, some people think Homelander is the hero sure. of the boys. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just, uh, a lot of my friends, um, you know, have, you know, they've read snippets of it, like some of the sex scenes and, you know, they've in good nature in, you know, good humor, like made fun of me. Um, <laughs> and someone asked me like, aren't you worried about putting like so much sex? I'm like, there's like 2000 words of sex, literally it's graphic, but it's not that much, you know, word count. And my response was like, if you read those sex scenes and you're getting like all hot and bothered, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, find a therapist. <laughs> I mean, that's what's, and in many ways, that's like the kind of, in many ways, kind of the lurid pleasure of this book. I think is the <laughs> lurid pleasure. <laughs> there is something I don't know. I keep trying to. It's awesome. My metaphor seems to always turn on this kind of luridness. This kind of like. Um, there's something a little overexposed, something a little permanently unwholesome. Yeah. This. And it's interesting to me, just thinking about it now, like to have been writing this character who is, um, in many ways disabled by his OCD and his need, uh, his germophobia, his need to be quote unquote clean, uh, to be writing that what sounds like right at the 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 heart and like mouth of the pandemic the covid pandemic like did you find that shaping things at all it i would say probably it, it intensified it uh-huh uh uh when it, and this might be the, the the spot where a sort of like talk about maybe author overlap mm -hmm. um well please talk about that because okay i will <laughs> um Thank you, Captain. <laughs> um, so there's a scene in the novel uh, when he, uh, it's its pretty late. I think it's part four. Um, he goes back home uh, to Ladue, Missouri. Uh, Ladue is a really affluent suburb of St. Louis. It's like, it has like the highest median income of that area. And um there's a scene where he recounts the first time he got poison ivy, which is if there's anything in this, that's like a hundred percent autobiographical. That's uh -huh. it. Uh, uh -huh. So I was like 12 got poison ivy super bad. And what you'll read in, in the novel is kind of, well, it's what I did, like not knowing now how to sort of like make the poison ivy sort of, go away quicker um and so that happened um puberty hit kind of late for me uh my mother was like you'll hit that growth spurt any day now i'm still not five foot five <laughs> and um in high school i kind of just pushed it down you know i i knew i was gay at seven but you know just didn't deal with it i just you know 
was on the wrestling team from seventh grade to 12th grade. So mm-hmm. think of that way you will, but <laughs> got through college, wink. Um, <laughs> wink. got through college. Um, and after college, uh, like Brian, I was in the mental health field for three years before I went to when went to grad school for my MFA. And I was often in situations where clients had various medical conditions and would often throw bodily fluids at you. Right. And uh, so like, that's when like, that's when my OCD just sort of came back out. And it's, it's never gone away. Uh, you know, in 2006, I joined a, a gay rugby team and played on that for 10 years. And that really helped. Uh, they called me the boy in the bubble because of my cleaning routines. But oh. <laughs> um, but uh, getting back to the question, like when COVID hit, it was almost kind of a relief, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I could wear a mask. I could... And not be stared at because uh, in the States, you know, like it's full of idiots. And uh, I could, you know, do you know my little things like I could wear sandwich bags on my hands as like makeshift gloves, you know, in the store if I wanted to or felt like I needed to. Um, and uh, yeah, so like it both intensified it, but it also kind of distanced me from Brian uh-huh. because I don't know. I'm just looking back at the world he lived in and how much fear someone like him had back then. Uh, and just how misguidedly well-intentioned it was. And I thought, why not dig into that mm-hmm. and why not make that sort of his one of his uh, central pitfalls or shortcomings? Um, I, I know you're only like, I mean, what is the date today? We're recording this on September 13th. <laughs> so the book's been out for what? 12, 12 days. days. So <laughs> anyways, I don't know how qualified you are to answer this yet, but you've done some readings at least so far. Um, I just know that uh, when my book comes out, which um, is Easter 2024, everybody, uh, go make your pre-orders now. Uh, <laughs> I will what get many Easter of the same. What's that? What day is Easter 2024? Well, technically, Wait, are you doing are you doing Roman or? Uh, yeah, we're doing. Of course, I'm doing Roman Catholic, but technically, it comes out on the Tuesday. But no one's going to remember the Tuesday. It comes out April second, but okay. we're going to do the launch in Toronto on Easter. I hope. I kind of want to do. This is uh, not official yet, but I kind of want to do a sing along of Jesus Christ Superstar to launch it in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Can you get those rights? I mean, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I, I do them all. I do them all the time here in Toronto. So okay. you've done Phantom, Andrew Lloyd Webber's friendly, at least. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know that when my debut work comes out, I'm going to get the same kind of questions of like, how much is this you? Is there, <laughs> does that, how has that been going so far, especially with this character? I, so it's been out 12 days. I had my very first reading and signing last night at Parnassus at Parnassus Books in Nashville, Ooh, Tennessee, nice. uh, co-owned by Ann Patchett. 
and it was great. Uh, I was, you know, I'm a catastrophist. Uh, that's another thing I share with Brian. Um, Me too. <laughs> right. So I was like, my Facebook event page, like 28 people had said they're going. Um, and I was like, damn it. Like maybe 20 people are going to show up. And like two friends, like one went on a birthday holiday trip and apparently caught COVID somehow. Um, and so a guy, another guy, one of my good straight friends went to a rock concert and he definitely caught COVID. So I was like, great, 18 people. Um, but no, uh, like over 60 showed up and I was just like floored. I got, so the night before I got a question from one of my MFA pals and she had assumed that this was real, a really autobiographical novel. And I had oh, to no. tell her, like, no, no. <laughs> um, and then that question came up at the reading in the guise of, you know, like, uh, you know, how much of this character, Brian, is you? Um, and I'm like, you know, I just laid out what I already said about, like, you know, my time in Memphis, my right. mental health. Um, and I'm like, but yeah, it's it's not me. I've had other people say, like, when they read it, they hear my voice. Wow. Like, He's a six <laughs> foot tall ginger. <laughs> I mean, eyes. I think that that's a testament to how well written it is. Is like I hope, I hope he feels so real. He feels you feel like you're inhabiting him, and it and it and the effect as a reader, at least for me, is like well, someone inhabited him first. Like that's how complete it feels as a perspective. Um, part of that is also, I think, helped by. I mean, you keep mentioning the like extremely detailed sense of place that this has like yeah. every street corner every landmark is very lovingly rendered um <laughs> no i i loved memphis my time in memphis i mean but when i left i knew it was time to leave and uh i memphis in in tennessee memphis has a bad reputation and mm. i think a lot of that is just to be blunt racist in in origin because it's a, a you know there's a quite sizable african-american population there and but i i love my time there it mm. it's you know i grew up in a in a like i was a tennessee's fifth largest city uh which is real near a super huge army base but Memphis is where I became who I am. Like it's where I came out. It's, you know, socially and professionally. And it's where I decided to like actually try to be a writer for real. And the city is, it has its problems. Like it has corrupt politics. It has mm. racist cops. It has gang violence, you name it. But I wouldn't be who I am and this novel wouldn't be anything if I hadn't spent nine, nine years there. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do the city justice. And that's why when I started blurbing people, one of the first people I blurbed was Corey Messler, who is not a well-known author. He's the co-owner of Burke's bookstore and he has like 12, 15 books. I don't even wow. know. Like he's like, he churns them out, but uh, like, he in his blurb he talked about how like you know i get the city right and mm -hmm. like he's a lifelong memphian and 
I think. And that was just like, I, that's all I needed to say. But it feels so meticulous and so just lived in. Like it just feels extremely unpracticed and like unrehearsed. It it It's the yeah. same thing that I admired about that now makes a little more sense to me talking to you about how casually um, accurate and evocative it is of its period. Like mm. you just mentioned like Adam for Adam and stuff. And it's like <laughs> my experience of reading this, it was like, oh yeah, like that's how these things felt. That's how we moved through the world back then. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that isn't like just dropping it in for color in a way that felt very organic to the story. I did wonder, is the gay bar that the characters keep going to real? Is that a real place? Is it something, the... is there a Romana clef to what that is? Or <laughs> um, uh... Is it a composite? No, like uh, the, the the biggest gay bar, uh, Club Fugue. Um, maybe I was being too clever with that. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you why I chose that name. But it was it was amnesia. Um, it closed down, I think, oh, I in early two thousand. <laughs> and uh, like the the partner of the manager. Um, used to wear this shirt that he drew like he was an artist and like uh sort of it was kind of a sort of like a, this funny sort of really gay guy and uh Celine Dion's it's all coming back to me now like was huge when I came out that's uh -huh. how old I am um so was Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart oh yeah um but it was like this uh really sort of like femi gay guy sloshed in a cocktail hand up <laughs> and you know, it's all coming back to me and it was like an amnesia shirt um so i named it club fugue uh entrope or entropy was uh modeled after a now defunct uh gay bar named backstreet uh which was different not owned by the same people as backstreet atlanta um mm. but uh it's now like uh it was behind a dairy but i think the last time i visited memphis it's sort of a a garage now for the dairy um <laughs> but yeah like uh i don't know i i could have used those names but uh any place where like stuff happened if i didn't make it up entirely like the mat the madison avenue tavern right um i changed the name mm -hmm. um I, 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 because of the nature of how we know each other and this podcast and your own work, um, is, is there much of religion in this? Is there much of God? There are these occasional moments where the character slips into like a theological reverie, uh, but I didn't find it laced throughout. Is there, did, did I miss something important? No, I, I think, I think for Brian, um, a lot of the OCD, and this may be subtext that I possibly should have, you know, made text, but he's from, in my mind, right. He's been traumatized not only by what's happened to him in the past, but by his religion. And I, again, I knew I was gay at seven and I knew what the Catholic church thought about, you know, people like us. And I was just always sort of 
aware of that. So I, you know, sort of getting that away from me and sort of focusing that in this character, I, I kind of wanted him to use his spirituality to what extent it exists because you're right it's laced throughout it's it's not it's not prominent because he's too what's the word he's too focused on himself to really think of anything bigger yeah he seems you know, quite locked in a way that is yeah i guess that's his tragic it feels like what is so tragic about him and what he's aware of is like he's stuck in these rhythms and he can't figure out a grace point out of them. Right. Um, and so the only time he uses religion is when he is sort of flagellating himself because of his OCD or his promiscuity, or when he's trying to, uh, trying to attack other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I might point to the, the scene, the conversation between him and Kurt late in the novel in the mall. Um, and yeah, like, you know, I'm not going to call him a cafeteria Catholic. I think he's, <laughs> he's not even that he's just he, the guilt and shame are so ingrained in him right? that he, he can only aim them at himself, which is his sort of natural motivation or at others when they are bringing up the truths they see about him that he won't or or can't acknowledge what this is my last question what okay. what did you want to be the effect of this novel like we've talked about the story we've talked about the themes uh how, how do you want this book to strike people how what did you imagine why does this book exist <laughs> because it it is a book that whose audacity is so striking and um, whose aesthetic sensibility is so specific and unique and studied. Um, like you talk about, what did you call yourself? A pantser? Yeah. Is that what you said? Like <laughs> That seems to me kind of a, a wild way to characterize yourself because everything about this is so meticulous. Um, and so, you know, like you're a realist in like a, I mean that in the re like the old school sense of like right. every detail is chosen and provided to us for a specific reason. And I, I wonder now that it's done, now that it's in print, when you stand back and look at it, what do you think it was all about? <laughs> uh, well, first, uh, thank you um, for those words. Uh, wow. Uh, it's it a feat. It's a it's a feat of a book. It it really is. You should be very proud of yourself for it. So what did I want? What do I want people to get out of this? Um, I wanted a first person narrator who so believes in himself, finally, but what he ends up believing, though he thinks it's a it's a victory, is his ultimate tragedy. Um, I wanted, I wanted readers to identify, if not they, if not identify with him, then to sympathize with him for as long as they could, and then to watch him go 
further than he ever thought, or maybe the reader ever thought they could. And I think, I think it kind of accomplish. I think it accomplishes that. I'm, I, I have a really bad habit of like throwing in kind ofs and sort ofs. Um, You're talking to me. I know. <laughs> You've listened to me for years doing exactly that. Just, I don't yeah. think you have to. No, no. That. I. God, if you recorded my classes, Lord. Um, but I've heard from people that are like, and my husband told me this. One of his coworkers read it, and his coworker said, "I never saw that ending coming." And Daniel, t- my husband's Daniel, told me that. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I know. You like, you give it all away at the beginning. Um, but yeah, I just, I wanted the reader to hope for Brian. And then I want to see, I want them to sort of realize why their hope is misplaced. Mm. Um, because what is the cliche? Every villain thinks they're the hero of their own story. Um, I didn't set out with that in mind, but, you know, looking at it at the final product, I think that's kind of it, you know, to reduce it to a cliche, but yeah, I, the book exists because it wouldn't let me stop reading, uh, writing it. Um, and I'm glad I got it actually out in the world because I could have kept tinkering it, tinkering with it for years, but I needed to let Brian go. So I think that's that's the real reason. <laughs> well, it is a monumental work. Um, oh my God, thank wow. you so much for letting me read it and for letting me talk to you about it. Uh, everyone who's listening to this should go get it. It's and the train kept moving. Uh, it's already out from Running Wild Press. This has been Michael Kiggins and Anthony Oliveira. Do you want to do the sign-off? Thank you so much, and... Be brave enough to be kind. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.